0: progressive casualty insurance company and affiliates price and coverage match limited by state law
1: i'll try to get i think i'm in some kind of like a funk depression or something that i got to get out of so what's going on oh i don't know i think it's honestly we'll we'll talk about it right now in the uh (laughs) okay we'll We'll solve it in in the next 30 minutes fast podcast I, I haven't uh, talked to you in a while, and uh, I think I might be depressed. I'm not sure. I don't. I don't feel depressed, but I. I think sometimes it, it, it seeps in. Melancholy—that's the word. I'm going to bring back a word. Melancholy. Mm-hmm. I think. I think about it. Melancholy, I, and I think some of it might have to do with the fact that I've been working from home so much. You and I both read this column by Arthur Brooks, who writes a column "How to Build a Life" in the Atlantic, which had some surprising stats about how much people absolutely hate working from home. And I, I was under the impression, I thought that everybody loves working from home, but it turns out that like three in four Americans early in the days of the pandemic confessed to being burned out. Nearly a third had considered quitting their jobs since being banned from the workplace uh, in another poll, 70% said that mixing work and other responsibilities had become a source of stress. So I don't know. I think I'm just feeling, I, I'm feeling a bout of melancholy. You're, you're working almost exclusively from home, aren't you?
0: Oh yeah, for sure. And I have been for quite a while too. So it's, I mean, I feel that same. I'm, yeah. I'm uber melancholic.
1: <laughs> I, I don't know but I, I feel like it's a, uh, obviously I would never make light of depression, but I'm definitely not depressed, but I wouldn't make light of melancholy either. I think I'm more just not as upbeat and positive as I usually am. You're my, you might actually be downright depressed though.
0: Yeah. Th- is it that obvious? You can tell like I can, Zoom.
1: Yeah, there's time. the tone
0: of my, tone yeah. of my voice. A,
1: I, sense this,
0: uh, I sense that in you
1: despondency and despair. I don't know. Like uh, <laughs> right. I, I, I sense that every now and then because yeah. I don't see Cause I've worked from home, but I also have a family where you're working from home and it's, it's you and your dog a lot. Right.
0: Well, it's the, I mean, I was working remote before the pandemic hit. And so, you know, I was already feeling, you you feel that general loneliness and just kind of the lack of daily interaction that Uh just becomes, you know, routine is just totally not there. And then now you layer on on top of the pandemic where everyone is, you know, not as not as much more recently, but I mean, people have been quarantined and people are generally just not open to engaging with a stranger, especially one that's like girthy. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and tattooed. So unless I mean, it's unless that's yeah. their thing, but yeah, unless it's their thing. It.
1: Yeah. I think, I think women that are probably into bigger guys are still a little bit more intimidated by a big guy wearing a mask.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You don't really know how I'm feeling. So I have to learn how to really smile with my eyes, but um, you know, it's, no, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's, it's true.
1: Drew, we, we moved about a year ago and I've been going to this little market and I swear, like I usually get pretty chummy with the people that work in my grocery market or grocery store. And I swear, I, I feel like, I feel like they loathe me. I feel like they, I do feel like I haven't gotten to know a single one of them and yeah. I feel like they all despise me because I can't carry on a conversation or anything just without, <laughs> without being able to make something like to be able to, you're right. If you're bigger, I think maybe sometimes you look menacing, uh, because they can't see that you're smiling.
0: Yeah. Well, you learn all those, those moves, you know, when you're younger and growing up, how to like to disarm people with other, other small ticks just to make sure they're not like terrified of you.
1: I've got, I've got a solution for you. Jazz hands. <laughs> you do
0: like, yes, that's right. Just yeah. to be like hey,
1: uh, and then do it with with flair and gusto. Yeah. Like I was gonna
0: say you, you don't think that it just looks like there might be a fire or something because they still the, can't the, see your face. Might be
1: really scared, or you might yeah. be trying to look even bigger. Like that looks
0: extra. Like magical. I'm scaring a bear. Like, yeah, yeah.
1: Like you're like you're fluffing up like a cat <laughs> or a rooster or something. Yeah, I was so I was surprised that I thought I thought we were in danger of basically offices being obsolete and that everything was going to change completely. And I know I probably I'm, I'm guessing a lot of maybe people who owned office space might've feared the same things. but it looks like all the research shows that the, the benefits of working from home start to plateau at about 15 hours per week. And then after that, a lot of people just really don't, they do not enjoy not having all that social interaction. And then I would suppose to, I don't know. I haven't worked in a traditional office environment in a long time, but working at the, working at the radio station, that's an office environment. I'm not like, like mm-hmm. I, I don't actually, I'm not in the office culture the way most office workers are. Cause we're just there for four hours very early in the morning. And, um, but I guess, has it been your experience working in offices that you end up like half of your friends end up being from the office?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think I'm probably like you were a little bit of a, an outlier, you know, because so much of it is you're drawing on life experience and everything else. Like as you become an adult, to forge friendships like that. And when you're coming out of sports and you're moving into industries that are just wildly outside of that, I mean, we're friends. We're never going to be like, you know, bosom buddies because we just don't have the same shared experience. I mean, we just don't, you know, so it's tough to like figure that out later in life. But there's no question that, I mean, it's just the daily interaction. It's just, you have to have that. And then there's the company culture element that just gets lost. I think after a while,
1: I don't know, man, I was, uh, you and I were texting back and forth a little bit about um, your suspected and probable depression. And uh, <laughs> I- you know, you read all these articles about how important it is to be around people and that's a secret to a happy life. You know, you know, we read <laughs> we read those little things from medium.com yeah. about all that self-help and everything. And I, I gotta think there's a subset of people, and I think I might be in, in 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 that subset of people that just genuinely prefer to be alone most of the time. Like I, right. I I like my I like my little slices of time with people, but I could spend like I think I would be an awesome hermit. I love to spend time alone doing nothing with anybody and not interacting at all to the point where I know you and other people, um, uh, sometimes think I'm ignoring you. And I, I always have to, I always have to explain that no, I don't call my mom. I don't, I don't text my, my friends from childhood or anything. I'm, uh, which, which I think, and when I do, it's mostly like a conscious effort to not be rude about it. So I, I enjoy my socializing, but I don't need, huge swaths of it in my day.
0: I, I don't either. I mean, I think we're actually much more on the, the same page maybe than you realize. It's just that we happen to both be living exact opposite lives. Yeah. You have family that you're it, like locked indoors with nonstop all the time. Yeah. And I'm completely like solo all the time. Yeah, so We're so just okay. like looking at It's not, it's not a, you know, it's no, 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 no,
1: You're right though. You're right. Cause I'm, I'm a little spoiled. Cause when, uh, w- my wife, and I were, so how do I say this without making it sound like we were separated? We were living separately. You were divorced. I was, yeah, we weren't. The relationship was fine. But my wife and child were up in New York because my wife has some health issues. And I was still working in Texas. And I was going back and forth a lot. But I was spending a whole big chunks of time by myself in Texas. And then I, I look back on that. And especially um, when Brandy... And, and my kid came back, um, that and they and they came into my apartment that I had been living in, and they both <laughs> they looked at it and it was like, just, like mortified. It was like they were watching an episode <laughs> of Hoarders or something. <laughs> like what the hell is going on here? I had just stuff is that a Baywatch strewn, poster? Up, and, yeah, <laughs> strewn is all happening? about the place. The, like the shades hadn't been opened in <laughs> months, and and I looked around. And I was like, yeah, this is uh. This is pretty bleak. This is we're not gonna lie to you. This is pretty bleak. I've been kind of lonely. So uh, yeah, I I probably have the right balance where I feel I, I get enough companionship just from um, my family and and various forest creatures that I see out my window. But I don't I, I don't necessarily need a whole lot more than that. But when okay. you're when you're living absolutely by yourself and get lonely. I mean,
0: it's funny, like that bar for what becomes acceptable gets super pliant. Yeah. I mean, you can like, you know, when you're talking about like, oh, yeah, those shades hadn't been drawn. I'm like, yeah, there might be like five bags of trash in my closet <laughs> right now. And it becomes
1: the, there it becomes be, the biggest There is
0: no, obstacle, there's no rule. There <laughs> is nobody here to give a shit. <laughs> no one cares. <laughs> no one's going to see it. There are no rules, you know? And so I feel like. Hey, my bed's made. I like. Yeah. I'm doing pretty good. The bar is very low. Like I'm not Unibarmer level, so I'm I'm kind of
1: killing it. So you've seen the actual. Yeah, you're cognizant of the actual real downside of not not socializing. Not have, you should have a party this weekend. Why don't you have a party? Why don't you have people over for the national championship game? Um.
0: You know, I mean it's it's compounded by the fact that I am like in a relatively new market too. So like I'm in Charlotte. I've been out in Charlotte only during COVID. So you'd be surprised like how hard it is as a almost like a middle aged man to make friends with people in a new city during a pandemic.
1: It's weird. I don't know, I don't know why. I should send you up to my my relatives, my aunt and uncle and cousins up uh, in Harmony, North Carolina. It's like I think it's about an hour and a half north of Charlotte. <laughs> yeah,
0: that sounds sounds great.
1: You should. No, no, they're all cool. They're like like they went to school and everything. Like they, yeah, uh, yeah okay, they're, they're yeah. Not, yeah, you know, I, I saw the prejudice in your eyes uh, when you when I told you about rural North Carolina. Oh, is it that obvious? Yeah, good. yeah. They got no, they got jobs and uh, they're pretty bright people and everything. Yeah, they nice. would, uh, you would enjoy. They, they got like a nice place on a river where they take their RV and they go uh, they go swim. Cook math. Yeah, <laughs> it's river water, so it's no, it's, these are, it's the best kind. These are fancy folk. Uh, there you go. Uh, speaking of which, you had sent me this article about.
0: <laughs> speaking of which, you're depressed and on meth.
1: Speaking speaking of classy people, I didn't know this. The cash me outside girl. Anybody that doesn't know who I'm talking about. It's uh, this girl that was when she was 13 years old, she came on to Dr. Phil with her mother because her mother was worried about her. And she started threatening to fight everybody in the audience member. And she was saying, catch me outside. But it sounded like catch me outside, catch me outside. So she became the "Catch me outside girl. And now she's I didn't realize this in the last five years. She has become a rapper who calls herself bad baby, but spelled B-H-A-D-B-H-A-B-I-E. That only took me like thirty-seven seconds to figure out that that's how you pronounced it. Um, so, in also in the last five years, she's turned eighteen, which made her eligible to now open an OnlyFans account. And on her OnlyFans account, in the course of twenty-four hours, she made how much was it? 000, 000 A million dollars? In six hours? In million dollars in six hours. And I didn't know. Okay. This is what I know of OnlyFans, Drew. And you don't have to tell me how you know more than I do about it, but this is what I know about OnlyFans.
0: (laughs) Wow, way to to throw me under the bus for no reason.
1: (laughs) I thought... (laughs) You don't have to tell me why you're an expert constantly sending me links. You spend more time in your underwear with the shades drawn (laughs) on the internet. We've already discussed this today. So, no, OnlyFans, as I understood, it was a place where women can do adult content. Like, they can you know, do things naked for fans that pay subscriptions and everything, right? Or take requests. Kind That's of like a, I understand a, it. Like a yeah. webcam type thing. I read an article that said like 25% of it is also personal trainers and musicians and all of those and, and people like that. So I don't, uh, I don't, it's never, it's not clear in any of the articles I read exactly what kind of content she is putting out there. The only thing I'd say about that is, you know, do what, do what you're going to do in life. I have a, I have a hard time with somebody that I first knew as a thirteen-year-old. I, I would have a really hard time being like the day she turned eighteen. Be like, oh, oh, oh yeah, now is what I, yeah, like, uh, isn't there? Wouldn't there be a grace period there somehow? I, I like, I haven't seen this bad baby in five years. The last time I saw her, she was an obnoxious thirteen-year-old on Dr. Phil. There's no, I feel. I feel like I should be the subject of a sting operation, even if I go check it out knowing that she's 18.
0: Oh, completely. I mean, it definitely just reeks of swaths of people who were just waiting for the clock to strike. Yeah. So they could just subscribe immediately as soon as she turned 18, which just makes you feel like <laughs> I need a shower. I got to take those five bags of trash out and shower.
1: Does this trouble uh, you that she's able to make this much money so quickly uh, on no. oh yeah, I'm, 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 I'm presuming yeah. doing to like adult content. I don't know. I don't know what she, maybe she's maybe <laughs> you she's see, you see I have no idea. Well, I guess Bella I, Bella Thorne did be. it too. And then I, I the same this website that you had sent about Bad Baby um, referenced an article about Bella Thorne. So I went to the Bella Thorne article and uh, boy, this is this is one hell of a website. Let's see. Unbelievable. Because I noticed in the In the Bad Baby website, it said something about how she made a million dollars. And that's not bad for a day's week. I think that made a day's work. Cause in a in a three hundred word article, you know, you, it's it's hard to get all the words correct. So, this, are you
0: this, badgering my my journalistic integrity? This, uh, yeah.
1: Well, a cinema blend, <laughs> cinemablend blend.com. I'm a little frustrated by that. I've been trying to catch up on pop culture, and I'm just <laughs> I am appalled at how bad all these blogs are writing anything remotely close. Uh, Half the yeah. articles, like honestly. Yeah, I get halfway through them and I and I think I'm having a stroke or something. I have no idea what they're talking about, and it's not it's not just because the content or the subject is unfamiliar. It's that they're that poorly written. Right. And yet these things, I think they're probably getting tens and thousands of hits just because they're about Bella Thorne and Bad Baby. Um, let's see the uh, the article about Bella Thorne. It said she plans to use the research from the site to create her own moving telling the LA Times she had plans to act in the flick. So I think she's talking about her own movie, because I guess she also, she she was already in an adult film before she went to OnlyFans. Uh, I, I don't know. I I think that in some ways this is refreshing to me, Drew, because for a while there, didn't it seem like nobody was going to make money in adult films and that porn stars and everybody were like the the... The, the salaries were getting driven down just because everything was getting overly saturated. So now bear with it's, me. Bear with me.
0: So much porn, though. Right, just, right. It's like anything. But, I just feel like. But that's so where. Much. Well, bear with me, though, because that's where I think it's refreshing. Like I keep trying to get through it all and I can't. <laughs> there's just too like, much of it.
1: It just keeps piling up. There's, it
0: just keeps piling up, and I can't. That's I'll right. never get through the bottom that's of the That's why
1: this. you're so frustrated. <laughs> just exhausting. like these, your VHS machine is there's just. There's only so many hours in the day, porn. Yeah, but as far as you know, the gig economy and all that kind of stuff. For a while, it looked like musicians weren't going to be able to make money, uh, or writers weren't going right. to be able to make money, and it's still yeah. it's still really tough for journalists and a lot of people. Um, but even with writers, if you really can build a following, and if you can build fans, and I would say the same for adult film stars or personal trainers that you see on OnlyFans, it's gotten pretty lucrative if you can build an mm-hmm. audience. You know, and a lot of writers right. now yeah. will do. Well, I know some of them will make a, a, an okay living on Medium.com, but then also on um, oh, what's the one? Patreon. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, Patreon. I, yeah. I, I subscribe to some Patreon. Podcasts. Do you? Yeah. The crazy thing about that mm-hmm. is that they. I, I always wonder about the fact that they disclose to everybody how many subscribers you have. So right. sometimes I've thought about subscribing to a guy like a writer. And, um, but then I'll see that he's making like $150,000 a year. And I think, you know what? I don't want to contribute any more than you already. I don't think you should be making $150,000 a year. I would do it. I would do it. If I thought you were struggling and I'm actually, I mean, I'm I'm totally cool with you making $150,000 a year, but I feel like, I would pay $5 a month if I thought that this was what's really helping this guy make it as a writer.
0: That takes it back exactly. So when you started out and asked, do I have a problem with this girl making a million dollars in six hours? Yeah. Yes. I have. (laughs) I love that. Like you said, I don't care whether they're, you know, adult film stars, whatever it is, writers, uh, fitness trainers. I like that they're empowered to have most of the control over their ability to earn a living. I think uh-huh. that's great. You're you're taking out not only the middleman. You're making them, you know, they're their own entrepreneurs. But I don't like that the amount of the amount of wealth that can be accrued by someone with no talent and no yeah. ethic. And and I mean, that's like I, I don't I don't even I don't even know what that says about our economy or but how is it's built. That, but that's just like gross.
1: Is it uh, any less a meritocracy than inheriting money?
0: It's not a meritocracy. What's our merit? Right. That's she what was, I'm saying. Sh- but, COVID inherited money. Right. 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 Yeah. So like, I yeah. mean,
1: I mean, not that everybody, yeah. not that everybody, yeah. you know, universally loves little rich kids or anything, right. but that's yeah. become, that's something that's been accepted for centuries yeah. uh, in in one way or another, but that's uh they're, they're no better. They're not doing anything. I mean, this cash me outside came up with a catchphrase which ironically included the word catch. <laughs> and who else has done that? And then she, and then she, you know, yeah, I mean, capitalized on it. She's brilliant. It took some, yeah. I, look, I'll tell you honestly, if I'd been on a reality show when I was 13 and I was some obnoxious punk and I tried to fight the audience members, you know what I would have done to won. capitalize on won. it? I no, I probably wouldn't have capitalized it on like this this girl's been hustling and who knows maybe it was all contrived uh in the in the beginning well I
0: think that says something about like the expectation now with yeah. how you're actually going to earn a living too it's just faster to start an OnlyFans and scissor someone
1: what <laughs> you should start an OnlyFans if you're scissoring. Yeah. you're
0: scissoring just scissoring scissoring things out of my refrigerator Nah.
1: You should have non sexual scissoring. I,
0: I was you, trying to be figure- you and a
1: you <laughs> and a buddy an talking about stuff. <laughs> as you scissor. <laughs> hey, uh by the way, before we go, last topic, uh Deshaun Watson, did he do it? Go. <laughs> yeah. Hot take, ready, set, go. I'm going on um, raw Ro- I'm going on Ross Tucker's podcast. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. one thing I've been following.
0: Oh, sorry. Go ahead.
1: No, no, no. I'm just gonna say it real quick before, because I know I, I, I kind of made you uncomfortable there. By no, it no. I got. Well, I'll, I'll,
0: I, 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 I want to talk about people who do terrible things all day.
1: I yeah. haven't, I haven't really gone outside the Houston market to talk about the Deshaun Watson stuff because it's so easy for somebody to just take a clip. I've yeah. been trying to be pretty even-handed about. You know talking about the actual legal stuff in the cases as much as i can and we bring attorneys on the radio show but it's so easy if you just tune it in any one moment and it sounds like you're either defending Deshaun, or right. you're saying that <laughs> yeah. you know Deshaun is a monster or it sounds like you're saying that oh yeah. these women are lying and i so i've been very careful and i'm, I'm nervous about going on ross tucker's podcast i'm going to tell him beforehand listen however you promote this God help you if you just take one little snippet that makes it look like, well, you know, the dames are usually <laughs> lying about this kind of stuff. Yeah.
0: One thing we know is you can't trust women.
1: Yeah, exactly. Seth
0: Payne on an 11. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, uh, so, it, so I've been living this life for like two weeks now. I bet. Yeah. That's not going to stop anytime, anytime soon. I'm sure. Are, are, what's your, what's your general read on the situation?
0: I, I, well, I think that it's, it's one of these things where, um, I think what sold it for me and I've kind of been following it, you know, not as closely obviously as you, but the, when he came out, I think this was last week when he came out and had the other, what is it? Like a dozen or so other masseuses,
1: 18 other massage, 18 other massage therapists, right.
0: Who vouched for him. I thought that is still really weird.
1: I think that he's got, cause now we're up to 40 massage. massage,
0: Like that doesn't, I mean, that's it's like a, it's like a, pedophile just being like um your honor look at all these other kids that i I hang out with all the time
1: why don't we talk why don't we talk about all the playgrounds i walked past and didn't do anything right and didn't do
0: it like look at all the kids i spend all my free time with that i haven't slept with
1: like they don't they don't mind you know i'm like that's still weird that's weird behavior i don't uh, well that's where uh, honestly that part of it the quantity of massage therapists for me it really doesn't do anything one way or the other. Just because I know that for one, I I used a lot of massage therapists. I say a lot. I mean, I had, I had like what's that? No, no, 40? no, 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 no. no. So I I said like three or four that were pretty regular, but when I would travel and whatnot, it's kind of tough to find good massage therapists, especially if you want a, a sports massage, he went Swedish massage, which is not as hardcore as sports massage, frankly, not as painful. I'm a little bit uh, disappointed in Deshaun on that yeah. front, but I, I try not to think too much about that part of it because I know that Deshaun leads, I'm guessing a pretty erratic life or like he has a pretty erratic travel schedule given Whatever is the endorsements, the vacations, just living in, uh, going to Atlanta and South Florida, all that stuff. And it's not as simple. You know, if you decide at noon that you want to massage at 3 p.m., it's not like you can just call your standard massage therapist and say, hey, I'm ready. You know, and Mm -hmm. that she's if she's a genuine professional, she's not going to just, you know, cancel her other clients because Deshaun beckoned. So that part of it is a little it's a lot. But I know he also has a, a pretty big schedule. The part of it, the part of having the other women vouch for him that I found interesting was that, look, Rusty Hardin, his defense attorney, knows and understands that we are way beyond the age when you can try to shame the accusers or you can right. try to slut shame the accusers. And yet he in a couple of those statements from a couple of those therapists, those women called out the plaintiffs. And one of them just flat out said that she thought that those women were lying and they, so almost by proxy, Rusty Harden was able Mm -hmm. to get that jab in, which if he or Deshaun or somebody in his camp had said that. It would have looked I mean, that's where you are when you're defending yourself in in these situations. Now, it's you have to walk a fine line between making it look like you're just some brute that's trying to bully women. Right. You know, or, or you're somebody that's, you know, accusing all women of lying or something. So he, he actually got that blow in or he uh, he snuck that blow in. And I was surprised that there wasn't more backlash from that.
0: I'm sure that it's all consuming in the Houston market, but yeah. you know, at least in being in North Carolina, I mean, it's just barely, really making you know, kind of penetrating. And I just don't. I wonder if it didn't really resonate. You know, that move that he that he pulled. I don't know that it that it resonated because I just don't feel like it's really that. It's really just not that much of a story. It doesn't feel like, and I don't the know. The entire
1: Deshaun Watson, thing.
0: the entire scandal. Dude. Yeah, I mean, it's, it almost seemed like it was a bigger deal. I don't know if you agree, but it seemed like it was almost at more of a fever pitch when it just looked like it was just a trade scandal before, you know. Oh, the, oh, yeah, the, it was
1: talked. Well, well, yeah. yeah, but I think, look, look at what's happened in the last 20 years, you know, and for one, or, well, I'll, I'll say the last 20 years. Okay, for centuries upon centuries, when women would make accusations, it fell on deaf ears or they were ignored or was rushed under the carpet, mm-hmm. right? So we've, we've learned a lot over the past, I'd say, five years, especially. um, And I think the public at large has and the media certainly has in how they cover it. Uh, So everybody's going to be very careful on how they treat the accusers. Um, But then also, when it comes to sports media, you've got the Duke lacrosse case, where the media at large was ready to hang those kids up by their feet, you know, because uh, in the court of public opinion, they were guilty and they did it. And it was, remember, people were irate that Duke hadn't canceled the program already, you know, that, that people were waiting. So I think everybody, when it's at this stage, is really just trying to wait and see. Right. Um, and yeah, in Houston, it's been big, but it's true. It's, it's like every two days, a new lawsuit comes out and it doesn't. It's also, you know, Tony Busby, the plaintiff's attorney is a pretty uh, notable local guy. He's he's yeah. had a lot of huge settlements and he's kind of a colorful character. So he's been able to. Draw so is the
0: feeling that up. these lawsuits that keep popping up? I mean, is the general feeling, even if they're not really weighing in on whether, Deshaun in, at large is kind of a dirtbag or not. Yeah. I mean, are they feeling like the more of these suits are accumulating, it's more likely that these are just like frivolous people like hanging I on and trying to capitalize or is it still I don't like, I don't out.
1: No, I don't. I don't know because they keep coming out and they keep coming forward. And yeah. I, I think is as, as much as i think some people are always in any case like this are going to be entrenched and say that you know no deshaun is 100 percent innocent or there's going to be people that say well look if there's this many accusers and i'll tell you like in my gut when there's this many accusers i mean i'm i i i can't think of a case where there have been this many people that come forward right. and that it was somehow all part of a a sham or a bunch of people chasing money i mean it's, this isn't like a class action suit where oh yeah i owned a, i owned a ford fiesta in 2007 so yeah I, i'm a part of this class, mm-hmm. class action suit. these are all individual incidents with individual circumstances so uh i have no idea what to make of it right i mean now. what's the
0: best case scenario for him as far as like what his behavior may have been It's best case. The best case
1: scenario, I think what he tried to paint out with the character witnesses would be that as part of his normal massages, like with with these 18 massage therapists that vouch for him, what they said is that hey, in a sports massage, a lot of times when you're doing that groin insertion or the hamstring insertion, you are brushing up against the genitals. And and hey, also by the way. Sometimes with massage, there will be uh, unintentional erections, and that, it, it, and that I think what Deshaun's defense will be is something along the lines of maybe these m- women misinterpreted, you know, what I was asking for mm-hmm. because they, I was asking them to go higher, go higher. In the one case, in one case, he claims that there was consensual activity, but that that woman tried to blackmail him, which was um. Did you? Th- yeah, that was. Uh, so he claims that one of these that. one of these plaintiffs, uh, several weeks ago or several months ago, sometime in the last couple of months, actually tried to blackmail him and said that it was consensual, but that it could be embarrassing for him. So she asked for thirty thousand dollars, and one of her male associates asked her after the uh, Deshaun's marketing agent declined. They were dealing with Deshaun's marketing agent at the time. Um, so that's that's the one little extra bit of drama that as they try to wage this war publicly. um, That's where we have as far as what's going to happen soon. Usually the NFL sits it out when it's just a civil suit and they're going to mount their own investigation, but they generally won't discipline based on a civil suit. If it goes criminal and now there's been at least one criminal complaint filed, then then there's more likely to be a suspension. Even if, he's ultimately found not guilty or if the charges are dropped or what have you once it goes criminal the NFL tends to be a lot more aggressive
0: but don't you feel like even just like with the the scale and the volume of cases that if it's even if it stays civil that the NFL is going to have to do something i would I mean, say
1: i would say the probability seems like that's what it would be just because of the number unless unless that somehow this is that many people looking to so, you yeah. know, to score a check, um, I, I, I mean, is Rusty Harden going to continue to stack up? Like, it looks like they tried to go to a one-to-one ratio almost, you know, you had 20 plaintiffs at the time right. and you had 18 character witness. Now there's 21, possibly 22 lawsuits now at this point. Um, yeah, I know that's that's where we are with that. So we'll uh, I'll, I'll keep you updated as as we go further along. So I want you to uh, I want you to go enjoy your basketball. Pull the shades up on your windows before you go, so when you come home, uh, you'll you'll feel like hey, I'm alive. Thanks.
0: That's that's yeah. great advice. I'm depression solved. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, buddy. Actually, right after you leave, I'm going to play my interview with larry olmstead who is the author of fans it's a book about how uh watching sports affects people psychologically sociologically all those things so enjoy larry olmstead and reach out to drew hodgton um about his uh
0: yeah for for dates whatever yeah (laughs) massage appointments
1: All right, my guest today is Larry Almstead. He is a best-selling author. He was named one of the 10 most extreme U.S. journalists. He's got a very popular column in Forbes. He's personally set or broken three world records. He's kind of like a much more sober and lucid Hunter S. Thompson, and I'm having him on because he wrote this book, Fans, and it's described as how watching sports makes us happier, healthier, healthier. And more understanding. And Mr. Olmstead, I must say, as a Texans fan, how dare you? How dare you say that the? How how dare you say that watching sports makes me happier right this moment?
2: Well, you know, the thing about sports is only one team wins every year in every sport. And you would think, well, if you're not a Tampa Bay Bucs fan, well, you just wasted your whole season. Yeah. Um, but that's just not the way it works. We get more uh, psychological benefit from the wins then we get psychological pain from the losses. And in most sports, most teams over time are pretty average. If your team is 50-50 for your lifetime, you come out ahead because you get more with every victory. And also the big wins, the, the big games uh, count more, and the, even the big losses eventually uh, get forgotten. That time heals all wounds. And I know, you know a perfect example is the Cubs fans. If they never win again, they got that World Series in their lifetime, and they'll never forget that. But it's easy to forget a lot of the other seasons along the way.
1: Yeah, and as I was reading that, you know, you described an 8-8 eight and eight season and how people remember the, the wins more than losses. And, you know, I work in sports radio, so a lot of times after an 8-8 eight and eight season, immediately afterwards it feels like people couldn't be more disappointed. But then you think back over time, and you remember some of the teams that you think of and remember with fondness, they weren't actually all that great and they didn't win championships, but you do remember those good times, I guess. I, you know, so much of, so much of what is written about today is people's negative bias that our brains are, are wired to be apprehensive, you know, to be on the lookout for the negative. What, what is it about sports that perhaps is different than that that you tend to end end up gravitating more towards the positive?
2: Well, so all these mental health benefits that uh, psychologists have found that sports fans enjoy more than non-fans, and there's about two dozen of them, but there are things like higher self-esteem and lower rates of depression and uh, uh, being more extroverted, more social connectivity, almost all of them stem from one thing, which is a sense of community and humans are tribal by nature it's in our dna since the stone ages we band together we live in tribes in packs in villages in towns cities countries just depending on the state of civilization and that's what we want to belong to something and sports fandom gives us a community in an easily accessible way that other forms of fandom and entertainment do not do as well and um You know, that's why when we talk about sports teams, fans of sports teams in this country, we use the term, you know, fill in the blank nation, Red Sox nation, nation, Texans nation, but you don't say Harry Potter nation for Harry Potter fans, even though there's plenty of Harry Potter fans. And that's because it runs so much deeper. I mean, when you watch, even if you never go to a game, you watch a Texans game, there's 50,000 people in the stadium and they're in full view of you the whole time. You can't help but notice the crowd, even if you're trying to watch the game. And that's why sports fans feel like they're part of that. But if I watch, I'm a Star Wars fan, but if I watch Star Wars at home, I don't feel like I'm part of something. I'm just watching a movie. And then you go to your supermarket. And you're walking down the aisle and you see someone in a Texans hat, maybe you have your Texan shirt on, and you make eye contact. And one NHL executive told me they call this in the business the, the head nod, right? You make a little a little recognition, and you're connected, but you're complete strangers, and it doesn't matter uh, race education, age, financial background. And then even, even like lately, I've been thinking a lot about bumper stickers, right? You see sports bumper stickers. At my, I live in New England. My next door neighbor has a Red Sox and Patriots sticker on his pickup truck. But I never seen a Star Wars bumper sticker on a car. I've seen thousands of sports bumper stickers. So it's kind of constantly reinforcing, even when you're away from the game, the sense that you belong to something and people like that.
1: You know, and the the part that's always intrigued me about that, and I, and I'm glad you use the word tribal, is that it seems like we've almost been able to also as as that's a, perhaps a replacement as sports become a replacement for other things that we might have previously belonged to. It seems like whatever human urge we have to associate with groups or to be a part of something, that perhaps sports is a much healthier replacement compared to some of the old ways we used to do it i mean the history of tribes in the world is is not a peaceful one you know there's a there's a lot of violence between tribes but i guess you can you can sublimate some of those human tendencies by instead of instead of genuinely hating or genuinely discriminating against one group of people you do it you do it in a sports sense, and I can hate Red Sox fans, but I'm not actually hating Red Sox fans. I can hate Yankees fans; I'm not actually hating Yankees. So, so is it perhaps even a, a negative turns into a positive through sports?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's definitely psychologists who have said that you know sports is a metaphor or substitute for war or for other you know primal urges that we don't act on, and that may well be true, but I don't think that's what the big positive of sports is, is that it stands in for war. I think, you know, it brings us happiness and benefits on its own. And, and, and I think, you know, right. It's sad to me, you know, when people say, Oh, I hate Yankees fans and they don't know them, but the reality is, you know, I've traveled all around the world and I spent a lot of time in airport bars and there's always sports on and you sit down and the person you sit down to might be, you know, I don't know who the Texans hated fans are, the Cowboys. <laughs> I don't know, but, uh, uh, you know, but even if you sit down next to your rival fan, you're not coming to blows. You're sort of agreeing to disagree in a friendly manner.
1: Yeah, that the, you end up you end up getting in friendly debates or at least yeah. usually there's always like there's always one psycho, right? That, that takes <laughs> a little too far. Uh, the, the one thing that you really hit on in this book that I hadn't even ever thought of before is that I feel like I feel like you're defending me and I didn't even realize I needed to be defended. The sports fan is portrayed in popular culture as this drunken oaf, like a Homer Simpson type of guy. And the data doesn't really support that, right? That this, the, the, the stereotypical sports fan of some guy that's just sitting on the couch and he's into his fifth beer every evening uh, and, he's, and he's just kind of dumb, that's not really supported by the research you've found.
2: No, it's absolutely not. And I took a lot a look at basically every uh, TV and Hollywood portrayal of the sports fan I could find, and they're universally negative and pretty much universally the same. This, yeah, this overweight, drunk male. And when about you know forty-seven to forty-eight percent of sports fans are women, and um, and sports fans are more physically active than non-fans, they don't drink any more than non-fans, uh, but. What, what you said, you know, about n- not needing defending, that's sort of one of my goals with this book is people are not embarrassed to be sports fans, but I found they're not overly proud of it either. And one sports radio host uh, I talked to the other day said, yeah, it's something you save for the second date. Um, <laughs> I, think, um, I think people should be proud. It, it, it does a lot of good things for society. So, you know, I don't want people to be okay with being sports fans. I want them to be happy. What was the one...
1: The one movie that you think gives a positive portrayal of sports fans?
2: Oh, that uh, Jimmy Jimmy Fallon one, right? Yeah, the Jimmy Fallon one, which is a remake of an English soccer movie, actually. Oh,
1: really? Yeah. Oh, Um, I didn't know that. Um, yeah, I, it it honestly, in, in your book, you go through kind of a conversation with your, you know, frankly, uh, your snobbish friend, Dr. Christie, who (laughs) thinks that she's too good to be a sports fan. And you're kind of, you're presenting the evidence along the way, Uh, but you do, do you run into that a lot? Because you're an author, you, you know, you run in circles with intellectuals at times, do you kind of almost find people? Uh, like almost like whispering that they're a, that they're a sports fan as they talk to you near the buffet table or something.
2: You know, not really. That's one of the, the things is the sports fandom really does transcend every every part of society. And if anything, it it opened doors. I mean, I I interviewed mayors and governors and ambassadors and State Department officials and people who otherwise would not have talked to me if I wanted to talk about public policy or. Um, but they're sports fans. Uh, the, probably the one the one area where that snobbery does exist is, is in academia within college campuses. But um, but interestingly, you know, the whole thing with Dr. Christine. Dr. Christie's a real real person. Uh, what what? Um, What it was was you get, you know, when you study something or you love something or you know a lot about something, you get kind of wrapped up in your perspective. And so when she said to me, like, well, what's the big deal? I sort of realized, well, this is how people who aren't me maybe see it. And that's useful because that's who I want to reach.
1: Yeah. Well, you're not a sports fan either, or you don't call yourself a sports fan.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I really am. And I found that most, a lot of people I've talked to since have been like, well, I'm not really a sports fan. I only follow. And then they tick off like six teams. Right. Yeah. Um, for me, the, the, statistically, the average sports fan follows between four and five teams. And usually that's in different sports because you typically wouldn't follow like two football teams. Um, so that's a lot. For me, I really only focus personally, my personal energies, on NFL football and then secondarily baseball. I don't really follow basketball. I don't follow college sports. So even though I like NFL football quite a bit. Uh, most what I think of as the avid sports fan is all over the board.
1: Yeah. Well, and you, you mentioned something that was really interesting when you talk about sports being the universal language. And for you who, uh, you know, you're a travel writer, you're all over the world. And obviously you're going to be in a lot of countries where you might not understand the most popular sport there. You still somehow use that as a way to talk to the locals, even though you don't know anything about sports, sports at all.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, for me, like my, my best example is snooker, right? You try to understand snooker on TV, not knowing what it is. And you're like, what the hell is going on? But anyone in the pub is really happy to explain snooker to you. Yeah. And then you're buying beers and, you know, and then the next day you don't remember the explanation of snooker. So you have to go through it all again. Um, but, but I think, yeah. And I, I think if I was in a bar at an airport in the U S and somebody from Italy said, you know, what is this American football? I would be happy to tell them what's going on.
1: Yeah, oh and well people love to be experts, don't they? So <laughs> if you're a, if you if you don't have a clue then that person gets to be an expert no matter how the little they actually know about snooker. What um this is the other thing that surprised me. It, frankly, I I'm a little ashamed that this is one of the things that stuck out the most to me, but because I'm in sports radio, and sports radio really wasn't invented as a medium full-time sports radio until the late 1980s uh, 1990 or so in, in New York City with the with the fan. Uh, it's the the first sports bar wasn't established until 1979. That really, that really surprised me because there's such an institution now.
2: Yeah. And, and, and and just the fact that there are sports bars and there is sports radio, you know, really speaks to the, the prevalence of sports, right? There's no opera bars or weather bars or, you know, the politics bars, but, but that is the first modern sports bar in the way we see them now, re- meaning that satellite TV to show games, Uh, memorabilia positioned as a sports bar. But I do also mention that back even, you know, in the 30s, people who couldn't go to the game would go to uh, bars and listen to baseball on the radio, kind of to be, again, sense of community, to be alone together. And, you know, to me, that's like the proto-sports bar.
1: Right. Yeah, they almost... There were bars that became sports bars, but that wasn't their intended purpose necessarily. Exactly. We're now and, now and it's, it's full bore into it.
2: Yeah. And then that model has been copied you know, all over the world in the ESPN zone and the idea of having multiple games, multiple TVs from multiple countries or sports and time zones on at the same time.
1: What have you seen as you talk about the sense of community that fans get from it, even as they're watching on television? have you seen the experience change through COVID where you're you're getting simulated crowd noise? You've got fan placards uh, in the stands. Has it has it reduced the enjoyment substantially or has it been less than you thought?
2: Um, it has reduced the enjoyment. I wouldn't say substantially. I mean, the biggest loss is that as I mentioned, part of the sense of community you get watching from home is that you're part of this action in the stands. And when there's no one in the stands that is lost, it becomes more like watching any other TV show. But, you know, the the other big differentiator of sports is the fact that it's unpredictable and unscripted, and you still have to watch to see what happens. Whereas, you know, when you watch, you know, NCIS, you know, they're going to catch the bad guy, you know, uh, most entertainment, you know, the outcome before you start watching it. So at least sports still has that. And I think if the pandemic were the rest of our lives, it would reduce the quality of our sporting experience. But I think we can make it we can make it a year.
1: Well, yeah, and we're almost still, you're getting a sense of community that we're all watching these games together alone. <laughs> and then that, that at least you can connect via social media or whatever, talking about how much it sucks that you can't be at the games. That forces you into your own little set of community.
2: And you don't have to, it doesn't have to be a sellout. Like, I think the Super Bowl was less than 40%, you know, of capacity, but it looked pretty full when you watched yeah. it on TV. You know, as long as, you know, there's not, you know, ba- vast open gaps in the, you know, and there were sporting events, like that anyway, <laughs> you know, that don't yeah, set that. that's
1: a good point. Um, the book is fans. I really enjoyed this. You've got it. It's a, it's like a pocket sized edition. So you could go and be the unpopular person that reads a book at a ball game very easily with this book. Who, who is your ideal customer here? Who is, who is this book written for?
2: Well, I mean, I think any sports fan is going to like it because they're going to find things they relate to and say, aha, yeah, I've had that experience. I understand that, but I really, encouraging the non-sports fan to read it because all of these ways that sports fandom has improved the world around us from the civil rights movement to uh, post-traumatic societal healing are things that make the world a better place that maybe non-fans don't appreciate and should thank sports fans for.
1: Oh, okay. I'm glad... That you mentioned that I was about to let you go, but when you talk into the more noble things that sports can do, which which some people might roll their eyes at if they were uninitiated, or perhaps your doctor friend might have thought that uh, sports can heal communities, sports might reduce the risk of suicide. Um, but then sports with civil rights, especially—I I, I mean, everybody knows the story of Jackie Robinson, whether they're sports fans or not. But what about sports, perhaps pushed civil rights along further than? Than if there had been no popular professional sports.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, the psychologists who study sports fans say, you know, when you're a devoted fan, you basically internalize your team to where they're part of you. So it's very similar to the way people perceive religion. Uh, You know, and occasionally people will abandon a religion and convert, but it's pretty rare. It takes a lot to make you give up that belief system. So if you're a Brooklyn Dodgers fan and you're racist, which certainly, you know, a goodly number of the fans were, and they go and bring Jackie Robinson on board, your choice is to be like, no, I'm racist. I can't support the Dodgers anymore or the Dodgers are important to me. I have to accept it and go on. And that's when the Dodgers are a part of you. It's easier to do the latter. And that little bit of acceptance, it doesn't make you not racist overnight, but it's a step down the path. And then other players come into the league and then other changes go on. So, you know, that's sort of been the, the social progression of sports the civil rights, women's rights. Now the social justice movement is very public steps that advance worthy causes.
1: Well, that is, uh, that's a great advertisement for the non-sports fan. And, uh, and I'm glad you brought that up because this is a very good book for non-sports fans. I think you did a good job of convincing your friend, Dr. Christie. I won't give away the ending of the book, um, <laughs> <laughs> but really appreciate you coming on, Larry. This is a, uh, this is a really good read fans. How watching sports makes us happier, healthier, and more understanding.